Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Is Smith a liberal or is he a conservative? The answer is very difficult because he doesn't use those terms liberal or conservative, left or right. But people want to conscript Smith to their cause. Welcome to The Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast for MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Charles Passy, a reporter at MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. Okay, Charles, this week, we're starting with a question. If I say Adam Smith, what pops into your mind? Um, capitalism. And probably the invisible hand. You know, if you just leave markets alone and keep government small, everything will kind of work itself out. Exactly. And that's what most of my students would say, too. That's why I think the book we're going to hear about this week is super interesting. For this episode, I spoke to Glory Liu. She's a Harvard lecturer, and she has a new book out. It's called Adam Smith's America, How a Scottish Philosopher Became an Icon of American Capitalism. Glory Liu says that this mainstream interpretation of Smith, the one you mentioned, Charles, that he's the defender of free markets and capitalism, is actually not right at all. You know, I never even took Econ 101, but I have to admit, I'm curious here. Just think, Charles, after this episode, you may be considering a career change. I don't know about that. All right, jokes aside, I asked Glory Lou why, of everyone she might have written a book about, she chose Adam Smith. So as a political theorist and intellectual historian, I've had a longstanding interest in ideas about wealth and inequality. And Adam Smith and his works are some of the most foundational if you are interested in exploring the origins of ideas about wealth and commercial society, or capitalism as we like to say. I think another reason is simply that Smith is a very powerful and beautiful writer, and he's also an extraordinarily complicated thinker. The other reason I was so drawn to Adam Smith is because people fight over Adam Smith. And you know something is really interesting when people fight over someone, because something's at stake. What do you mean people fight over him? Well, if you, you know, hopped on the internet and Googled something like the Adam Smith Society, which is based here in the United States, or the Adam Smith Institute, which is based in London, you'll probably see very familiar slogans like Smith was the author of foundational ideas of capitalism, of individual liberty and limited government and free markets that would spur innovation and growth. Now, Smith scholars are going to contest that image because they know that Smith was not as one-dimensional as limited government pro-free market. And in fact, you have quite a lot of scholarship that suggests, well, Smith was really concerned with extreme levels of inequality, and that Smith was willing to use state apparatuses for things like progressive taxation or moderate redistribution. He was deeply concerned with the poor. So, you know, to really boil this down, you have 
Smith, free market capitalism, limited government on the one hand, and then on the other hand, this pushback saying, no, actually, Smith was in favor of a strong, potentially interventionist government to achieve a more just society. So there's actually a lot at stake for people with these different interpretations of Smith. Yeah, so Smith is very contested because I think for a lot of people, he's seen as foundational in some way. And that in some way is the thing that is contested. If you look at where he's assigned in college syllabi, for example, just as a very rough indicator, the most places where Smith's work shows up, specifically the Wealth of Nations, is in economics courses. And anytime I ask students, where have you heard of Adam Smith, they'll usually say Econ 101. And they'll say, yeah, Smith is considered the founder of economics. So that's one way in which he's seen as foundational. But then let's get to the other part, right? Because it turns out he also wrote other stuff, <laughs> the theory of moral sentiments. Now that is a work of 18th century moral sentimentalism. And so if you're taking a philosophy class, you'll probably encounter Smith as amongst a group of thinkers in the 18th century who was trying to understand the nature of morality and human nature as being grounded in sentiment and humans as being altruistic rather than as inherently selfish. And then of course there's this kind of in-between space of, of Smith as a political thinker of sorts and where you get his political theory and political thinking from. And even when we ask that question, what is Smith's politics? I think people have very different interpretations of what that means. A lot of the times they think, is Smith a liberal or is he a conservative? And if you actually take the time to read Smith's works, the answer is very difficult because he doesn't use those terms liberal or conservative, left or right. But people want to conscript Smith to their cause again, because he's seen as foundational in some way. And if you can get a foundational thinker on your side, that can be really powerful. I think a really good analogy here is something like the founding fathers, right? Like we venerate the founding fathers because they're seen as authorities. And if you can show that the founders believed something, well, that's just a way to prove that you're in the right. This is the way things should be. And Smith very much has that quality around him. He's seen as a founder of sorts. And if you can enlist him to your cause, you've kind of won. You know, I took the History of Economic Thought course as an undergraduate, and it really grabbed me. And I'll tell you, we read The Wealth of Nations cover to cover. I read that book. And when you say Smith was a beautiful writer, I have to agree. I mean, I, I loved reading Smith as a student. And you know what I also remember is that I had another professor, one who taught European economic history. And what I remember is that every time she said the name Adam Smith, her right hand automatically went to her heart. She put her hand over her heart. And it sort of speaks to this idea of Smith as this holy figure in economics, the father of the discipline. And I just wonder what you make of that. Yeah, I, you know, I, I was doing another interview and the interview said like, you know, the other person that Adam Smith reminds me of is like, Jesus. The way people can kind of quote the wealth of nations out of context for their cause, not unlike the way people quote from the Bible for their own cause, right? A venerated figure 
and somebody who left their mark on the world in such a powerful way. But we have to do quite a lot of work to separate what was later created, right? What gave Smith that religious <laughs> halo effect from what was originally intended and how it was originally conceived and created. And that distance is pretty big. And there are a lot of twists and turns in that story from Smith, the quirky enlightenment Scottish philosopher, to Smith, the person we genuflect when we hear his name in an econ course. And that's really what I tried to do in this book is show like there are a lot of twists and turns in this story. So in order to understand that story, let's take a step back. We know that Smith was a Scottish intellectual, a professor, and a writer, but take us through his life and help us put it in the context of his time. Smith's life is pretty boring, but the times in which he lived were really interesting. So Smith's life spans 1723 to 1790, and this is a really, really crucial period. So one thing that's really important to remember is that this is pre-industrial revolution. Smith is witnessing some massive changes in the way society looks and also the way power looks. Kirkcaldy and Glasgow, they both become really important trading centers and ports to the rest of Great Britain and Europe in this period. And they both see the rise of a new merchant class that kind of really takes control of local politics in the time. Like the cities that he was born in, grew up in, and taught in are undergoing these massive socioeconomic changes, and that's changing the way power looks. The other thing that's happening is, of course, the rumblings of the American Revolution. Meanwhile, the East India Company, which is probably the most notorious, infamous company of merchants that ends up informally ruling the entirety of the Indian subcontinent in the 18th century and beyond is rising to power. Those are pretty impressive changes if you think about it, right? And so that's the world Smith is living in. It's a world of growing interconnectivity, but also growing political and economic tension because people are fighting over the forms of power and the forms of control. Who do you think he was writing for? Statesmen, or people who are going to be statesmen, right? His audience is people in power, or people with connections to power, or aspiring to power. If you have the pleasure and privilege of seeing the first edition of The Wealth of Nations, it's huge, right? Like, this is not a book that you buy at the grocery checkout. <laughs> it's a book that you keep at home on your reading desk and not something that everybody could afford. And he's very clear, I think, in that he's trying to help statesmen think about not only just like technical definitions of wealth and value and price, but think about how history can inform the kinds of decisions they make about statecraft. So when I teach students how to read The Wealth of Nations, I'll say, this is a book about economic life. It's about how we get our needs. So that's what book one and book two are about. The division of labor, the famous image of the pin factory, the de kind of definitions of price and value and wages and rent and money and how capital flows and how money works. 
economic life, right? The stuff that individuals interact with on a regular basis. It's incredibly human as well, right? But the wealth of nations is not just about economic life. It's about political economy. And political economy is about the power structures and the rules in place that create an economy so that everybody can meet their needs. And that's what I think most of the wealth of nations is about. I really like to disarm students and new readers with that perspective on the wealth of nations because I think it really shows the distance between the caricature of Adam Smith as like this defender of free market capitalism and what the wealth of nations is really about. Coming up, where does this one-dimensional mainstream idea of Smith as the defender of free markets come from? That's after the break. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we heard from Glory Liu, author of a new book called Adam Smith's America. Liu walked us through how Adam Smith became a venerated figure known as the father of economics and one of the world's most famous thinkers. But we also talked about how she thinks he's been misinterpreted. Let's jump back into that conversation. So your book is about the reception of Adam Smith's thoughts and ideas here in America and how he's been interpreted over time. What are the biggest turning points? I think the version of Smith as an icon of free markets really comes from the Chicago School economists, Milton Friedman and George Stigler in the post-depression and post-war period. And what Stigler and Friedman do is they take Adam Smith and they turn him into this shorthand. For Stigler, Adam Smith really represents the infallibility of self-interest as the explanatory behavior for human social order. For Milton Friedman, the idea of the invisible hand is both a descriptive metaphor for how the price system works and how markets work and how markets kind of achieve allocative efficiency. But the invisible hand is also a normative metaphor for how markets enshrine human individual freedom. That like individual freedom of choice is the best thing and markets are the best way to secure that freedom for individuals from government. And those two things combined become an extremely powerful package that Friedman, more than George Stigler, both are very, very prominent economists, both Nobel laureates in their lifetime. But Friedman really is the public intellectual in the 1960s and 1970s. 
And Friedman is out there writing newspaper columns, advising presidents on PBS documentaries, telling Americans that their freedom is realized in the market. And in order to shield themselves and protect themselves from the tyranny of government, from the tyranny of bureaucracy, we need to kind of let markets reign free because that's the best way to protect our freedom. And so I think it's in that moment, in the kind of late 1970s and early 1980s, that we get this version of Adam Smith that has seemingly politically neutral underpinning, right? The science of the price mechanism, the kind of like objective assumption about rational behavior, right? But paired with a political agenda that becomes incredibly marketable, <laughs> pun not intended, and incredibly powerful as a way of selling a political and economic idea of individual freedom. You describe Smith as a political theorist, but then when it comes to politics or his own politics, you say that he was incredibly hard to pin down. How do you think about the fact that it's so difficult? And the reason, I guess, that so many people can lay claim to him is because there is enough nuance in there that you can sort of grab a hold of the bits and pieces you like and align them with your, in a sense, political leanings. You know, I remember reading the work of one of these older economists who says, you know, it's very hard to find somebody who cannot quote from the wealth of nations to suit their needs, right? One of my favorite Smith commentators, Donald Winch, he, he writes that, you know, Smith is infuriatingly balanced. <laughs> just when you think you pinned him down, just when you think, aha, this is what Smith believes, I think I can put him in category A or, you know, party, party A. He'll kind of turn around and be like, but actually, right? Like just when you finish reading the stuff about liberalized trade and why liberalized trade is good, Smith will kind of seem to do a 180 and say, well, actually national defense needs to take a priority. And it's not that he's flip-flopping, it's that I think Smith was so thorough in trying to account for the different circumstances and different historical and institutional contingencies under which a rule or a policy might have to be thought of in a different way. He was such a historical thinker. He really cares about showing how the human record is very messy and that you often can't predict when things are gonna turn out the way you want them to. Why is Smith still relevant today? So Smith is relevant today because Smith is answering questions that are always relevant. And those are questions like, how do we meet our basic needs as a society that lives primarily by exchange? in a society that is incredibly interdependent and connected by networks of commerce and exchange, not just locally, but internationally. But the other part of that question is also things like, how do we create the institutions, the norms, and the elements of statecraft that govern the rules of the economy that helps us meet our needs? And those are the questions of political economy. And Smith shows through his incredible analysis of history 
through his analysis of institutional design, that there are better and worse ways of doing things. <laughs> and I think reading Smith to understand the way he thought rather than what he thought is always relevant because I think we can get really caught up in thinking that our way of thinking through problems is the right way or the only way. And Smith, but also looking at historical thinkers more generally, can be a really useful resource for challenging our preconceptions and for just looking at different ways of seeing and understanding the world. Your book is called Adam Smith's America. Why isn't it America's Adam Smith? There's a, a, a kind of an editorial answer, which is, my editor did not like the title that I gave. And so he proposed Adam Smith's America because it sounded really good. And I resisted because I was like, well, not about Adam Smith's idea of America. It's about America's idea of Adam Smith. But at the end of the day, there's an ironic twist, which is that for so many centuries, Americans have been returning to the same thinker and the same set of texts to navigate some of the biggest questions in political economy. And we've been captivated by his ideas and in some ways kind of captured by his ideas. And that's why we ended up going with this idea. It's Adam Smith's America, right? That like, even though my book is about the Smith that Americans have imagined and created and interpreted and reinterpreted, we've ultimately become captive to the version of Smith that we created. After people listen to this podcast and buy your book and read your <laughs> book and get very interested in Adam Smith, and then they want to go on and, and read Smith. And really, we're talking about the two big works because there's not that much more that you can read of Adam Smith apart from the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations. Which one should they start with? So here's what I recommend. I recommend starting with the theory of moral sentiments because A, it's shorter, <laughs> and B, it really highlights my favorite things about Smith, which is that um, he gets inside your head. He has a way of writing that brings things to life. And it's like he's pulling back the curtain on your everyday experience and your thoughts. You get a sense of Smith's style and you get a sense of just how keen of an observer he is. And that's something that's really essential to understanding Smith as a thinker, right? He is like one of the best observers of human behavior. And you really see that in the theory of moral sentiments. And then I would say, you know, like if you have the stomach for it, take a stab at the wealth of nations. I'm also not somebody though, like I should, I should warn people, like I don't think that everybody needs to read The Wealth of Nations. <laughs> Certainly not cover to cover. Like I don't know how many times I've read it, but like I usually skip the digression on silver. But like for the ordinary reader, I think a good way to access Smith is starting with the theory of moral sentiments and then diving into as much or as little of The Wealth of Nations to get a flavor for what that book is like and just how different it is from your expectations. And then like reading a really good commentary or biography alongside. 
Thanks for listening to The Best New Ideas in Money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Glory Lou. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Charles Passy. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch. The producers are Michael McDowell, Katie Ferguson, and Meta Lutzhoft, who also mixed this episode. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. Nathan Vardy was our newsroom editor on this episode. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea. 